0: song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm
1: David Gibbs.
0: And this is how wrestling explains... Prestigious episode today, Dave.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I went for my uh, my big prestigious introduction for myself, you know, just to, to make sure that I suited the day and the episode and the occasion.
0: And we are, of course, talking about the Intercontinental Championship, which uh, we were, we did, a, a. we did, Dave did a lot of research for this episode, and we both looking at it kind of realized that uh, normally we, we start these episodes with a brief, unfortunate history of a given topic, but I think we decided that that's not really possible to do with the Intercontinental Championship. Right, Dave?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, this year, the Intercontinental title is uh, 40 years old, or it will be in the fall. Uh, 1979 is is when it was created. It really has been many titles in that 40-year span. I don't think that you could tell one definitive history of the title that was cohesive and really did justice to what the title had really meant at any one moment.
0: Yeah. So we are actually going to start, uh, with, we're going to go through different eras. Uh, we're not going to like put it in big lights, but we'll kind of, you'll know when we're talking about a different era, especially when we get into the, Ooh, yeah. Intercontinental heavyweight championship part. But, uh, we wanted to start off with the beginning, the, almost the pre- I guess the pre-IC title era, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the the IC title is, is added in the fall of 79, as I said before, September of 79. But earlier that year, um, they created another title in the WWF, which was the North American title, uh, the North American Heavyweight Championship. And Ted DiBiase... Uh, yes, that Ted DiBiase was the inaugural champion. And this is just Ted DiBiase is like a good looking white meat baby face in trunks, clean shaven, kind of a bowl cut, no like maniacal laugh or anything. Just like, uh, you know, Iron Mike DiBiase's son, uh, exciting young athlete, Ted DiBiase. So he's the first champion and he feuds with Pat Patterson and Patterson gets the title from him in June of 79. Then in the fall of 79, they unify that title with a fictitious South American title, and they do it in a fictitious tournament in Rio de Janeiro. And of course, the person who held that fictitious title that was lost to uh, Pat Patterson in that unification match, of course, it was Johnny Rods, because you know that was the only Hispanic guy on hand who could take a job, and therefore, he's who would have lost the South American championship to Pat Patterson. Obviously, right. Uh, so, if you know the politics of of nineteen seventies WWF, it's not far off. But, uh, but, 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 so that that's kind of the story. Is it? it starts as the North American title. I think that doesn't seem kind of big and glitzy enough. So they immediately decide let's take it another direction, intercontinental, make it seem like it's something that's really you know sought after around the world, not just like a local. It seems like they you know they weren't satisfied to have another regional you know, a local title, like the U.S. title in the Mid-Atlantic or the the U.S. title in Detroit or whatever. They didn't just want that regional title. So they they, they made it something bigger. They definitely were trying to make another almost world championship with this crazy imagined Carney narrative. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really, uh, to me, the, I know I use this phrase every week, this specific thing is, like, a top three most wrestling thing in history, right? Right, Dave? Like, this, the idea that they had a fake tournament for their second most prestigious title, and we're just like, oh, it totally happened, is just fucking wild. And it's something that is really specific to not just, like, though it's a world, I hate to... Use him, but a pre melter world where, like, no one is covering the business in a meaningful way. Like, this isn't just pre internet, it is pre, like, actual scrutiny on the business in a meaningful way and that's how you can get away with a fake tournament to crown a incredibly important at that time presumably champion it's fucking mind blowing to me like even when you're a kid and you find out about it and you're like oh where's the match and they're like oh we just don't have it on video you're like oh that's weird and then you find out like 20 years later like oh it was entirely fake it's kind of like oh i guess that makes sense but it's also mind blowing that they got away with
1: it yeah definitely i mean it's It's interesting that they got away with this whole kind of clunky way of rolling out a title that they created one title six months later decided that wasn't good enough and created something bigger and better. This is kind of interesting because to me, Nick, you say, you know, this is one of the most wrestling things. To me, this is the first great Vince McMahon thing. This is the first great Vincent K McMahon thing. Not that he had full control of the company yet, but his father certainly would have been sick in 79, I think. And, and he would have been starting to grow in responsibilities. And I kind of see this as one of the first big Vince McMahon things like, no, 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 no. It's not the North American title. That's not big enough. That's a regional thing. We've got to have this intercontinental title and the champions going to be crowned in Rio de Janeiro. And we're going to have this big tournament. And then they go, well, that's going to be like really expensive. We really are just a regional company. We can't do that. And we'll, we'll just pretend that it all happened. Who cares? We'll tell them. We'll take fake pictures. You know what? Like to me it is the first great Vincent K McMahon Horseshit showman moment.
0: So you think it's more of a sports entertainment moment necessarily than a pre, than a professional wrestling moment necessarily?
1: I think it was still a world of professional wrestling, and if you watch uh, if you watch one of these if you watch a match between you know Patterson and DiBiase, which we'll talk about more in the essential viewing, it's certainly traditional. Pro wrestling that's happening in the ring, but I think you're starting to see some of the sports entertainment flair really start. And like I said, for me, this is one of the first moments where I really see that sports entertainment Vince K. McMahon stand back
0: on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> and and like like you said we will be talking about patterson and DiBiase in the next episode but i think patterson's an interesting choice for champion just because of his influence with the company i don't know what it was like at that time but over the last 40 years he's become basically known as vince's right hand man or he was for a very long period was this kind of like a thanks pat Or was this like, we just like Pat Patterson, we think he's a good worker, we want to put a title on him kind of thing?
1: Well, Pat Patterson, I mean, it it sounds crazy to say this because like as Conrad Thompson always points out, you know, AJ Styles is 41. But in 79, Patterson would have been 38? And you know, he, as as much as he was a great wrestler, he was primarily known as a big tag team wrestler in, in both San Francisco and with Ray
0: Stevens, right?
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With with Ray Stevens, definitely both in both in uh, the, the San Francisco and in the AWA uh, as well. And also, he teamed at times with uh, Bachwinkle in the AWA. So, I mean, he had been kind of the greater one of the great tag team wrestlers of the sixties and seventies. Uh, but I think that, yeah, he, he was coming off of a stint, uh, booking in Florida. And I think that at the time there definitely was the idea that if Pat was someone out there and Pat was someone who was interested in booking, once again, you're seeing the foundations of the empire being laid here in 79, mm-hmm. even before Vince really has the reins, um, And so I think it was a conscious decision to, to bring Pat in and get Pat on the payroll. And I think he was chosen because as we'll talk about in essential viewing, I think he was the right kind of heel wrestler to start a title with, especially a title that had a totally bullshit backstory. And even if it had been somehow exposed, Patterson had the character where the heat could have been kept on him for making up the story. It wouldn't have been all, you know, 2018 heat on the company kind of thing. Like, I think it was a brilliant move on a lot of levels. And I think part of it was that, you know, Patterson was starting to to think about moving away from the ring and towards full-time booking. And, and maybe the idea was, yeah, starting to to bring him on board as, as someone who could help with the national expansion if that's the role that he saw for himself.
0: And from there, you get uh, like that post Patterson, because he's going to hold it. Does he hold it for a crazy amount of time? I don't even know.
1: Yeah, he holds it from September to April, so he definitely holds it long enough to uh, to, to to you know kind of legitimize it as the original champion. And he does maintain that that feud with Ted DiBiase. And as we'll talk about in essential viewing next episode, uh, they had really really good matches and a really really great feud. But I think as as you transitioned into the eighties, um, you know, I think the golden era of wrestlers like Pat Patterson and Anna Pat Patterson physically were behind him so in spring of 80 it goes to ken patera and really for functional purposes that's kind of where the real lineage starts like pat patterson is there and he's the figurehead but like most of that is bullshit and he you know was just there to really establish the title and lose it to someone else kind of like in the history of the WWF, like Buddy Rogers was really just there to have the title and lose it to Bruno, so he just held this traditional role. But I would say that, yeah, like the re- the nineteen eighties start when Ken Patero wins the title in April of eighty. You know.
0: Yeah, and he's um he's a le- he's weird because he's I, I don't think he's the best wrestler, but he's a legitimate strongman and he's a legitimate like physical specimen in a way that I think really speaks to the. Um, aesthetic choices of the era—is that the nicest way to put it? I think I can take. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is the nicest way I can put it.
1: <laughs> Definitely. I remember when I, when we were in college, Nick on like ESPN Two and ESPN Classic late at night they would replay the World's Strongest Men because, believe it or not, when Nick and I were in college, like World's Strongest Man, like Atlas Stone, that shit was over for a minute. (laughs) But uh, but, uh, at night, they they owned the rights to the old, I think they originally aired on ABC, but they owned the rights to the original World's Strongest Man competitions, and they were replaying these ones from the late 70s, early 80s, with like Lou Ferrigno and Ken Patera and Jeep Swenson, who was um, Ultimate Solution in WCW. Like all these guys who went on to be wrestlers w- participated in these early World strongest man competitions. So like Ken Patero was almost the Ken Shamrock of his day where he was unbelievably legit in that he was getting airtime on network TV and these strongman competitions. Like at the same time he was breaking in, in the AWA as a wrestler. So he was almost like the Ken Shamrock or the Brock Lesnar of his day, though, as you say, you know, not a great worker in the way we think of exciting matches today.
0: God that was even nicer than the way I put mine. And it's it's a title that helps to develop the triple crown, right? Which becomes a big thing in the 90s for reasons we'll get into. The first person, I believe, and the first the only person for a long time to get that is is Pedro Morales who wins the IC who is an IC champion and is kind of one of the I think pantheon IC champions because he was a triple crown winner like at least during the when I was when we were growing up watching wrestling to me he was somebody who got mentioned a lot because of that triple crown and you can't obviously this sounds kind of stupid to say you can't have that with the uh, without the IC title and I think it works to make a wrestler seem more complete than a guy that just shoots to the world title even though that's presumably the better wrestler
1: yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the famous apocryphal story, right, is that Pedro Morales was too hot to, to hold the WWWF title back in the early 70s. So that was almost like a decade later in the era where they're really starting to ramp up touring and, you know, they need a second title to, to have legit cards and stuff. I mean, if you're running two, three touring cards, you definitely need, you know, two good singles acts. So it was almost like, you know, a decade after he was you know, threatening to ruin business by causing riots. He kind of finally got his moment to, to be the champion. Like I, I, obviously he wasn't the same worker that he had been, you know, in, in the seventies, but as we'll talk about in the, in the essential viewing, he was definitely still just a great brawler and a hot, hot, wild overact whose fans were so into him in the way that doesn't exist post Hulk Hogan. Like Hulk Hogan cast such a wide net that you didn't have the like, whatever the, the Jim Landis, the Spirus Aryan you know what I mean? You didn't have that like niche ethnic cultural baby face. And he's almost like the last great one in some ways. And you can, you can still see bits of that in his IC title reign, really 10 years post prime.
0: Yeah. He's, he's just incredibly over in having watched the match that we did. It's he, the crowd's super hot for it. And I, I think it doesn't hurt that Don Morocco who, is so much better than you think he's going to be. It's kind... It, like, almost broke the way I thought about wrestling. He's
1: Adrian (laughs) Adonis-esque. He's,
0: like, a fucking great talker. Like, a really, 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 like essential talker in a way I was not expecting. I thought he was just going to be like a big lubbering idiot. And like, I'd seen Fuji vice. So I thought he was just like a weirdo. No, I get, I went from like, who, why the fuck is this guy over to like, Oh, Oh, okay. I get it. 195%. Like he is a guy you have to see in his own context to get why he's so good, but he's really He's really awesome.
1: Yeah, he's – Morocco is a great character heel. Like, he, he yeah. had good matches and, like you said, way more athletic than he really had any right being. <laughs> but, yeah, like, he was a character heel in the way that people are heels now or the way that people should be heels now, frankly, where just, like, he's, he's not necessarily, like, begging off and complaining to the referee about the speed of the count and stuff. It's like he's just a guy who's like a dick and leads a dick's lifestyle. It's the same thing uh, you saw like Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams in World Class. Very similar and around the same time too. But just that, just like real, he's a real person and he's a real heel. He's not like a phony wrestling heel. He's like a real human being who's a dick. And he happens to live this jet set lifestyle because he's a wrestler. No, he's he is a an actual character in a way a lot of '80s heels just
0: aren't. Yeah, they're caricatures. He's like an actual, fully formed person, like you said. It's awesome. Like he is the biggest was the biggest surprise for me going back through not just for this show but in general. Like going back through old wrest older wrestling, like before I was born, you totally get like I said why he's as big a deal as he is. I don't, but I don't care what you say. I will never understand uh, Tito Santana, who's another guy from this era. I will never understand that dude's appeal. Can you please explain to me what I'm missing with Tito Santana?
1: Well, he's a he's a fiery baby face. He's a good-looking guy who's got long, uh, pretty hair, and he he gets excited, and he wears white, a uh, little uh, like a white speedo kind of kind of deal, white boots.
0: So it's not that he's good. So I'm not missing. Okay. I did that. I was concerned that I was just like, not like I was missing the sub. I, I He's. He's there. He's a wrestler in a, think, in a company.
1: I think that, you know, there's, there's famously years later in the nineties, the, the line about Vince McMahon, I think both Bruce Pritchard and Jim Corona told this story various times. And I think it's about too cold Scorpio. Uh, but they, they said, you know, at, at one point, that like uh, Scorpio's in the ring and, you know, he's doing a job for someone and he, you know, he looks really great. And whoever says like, man, you know, Scorpio's looking really good out there. And Vince says something about, yeah, you know, that's the curse of being a great worker. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think Tito Santana was, once again, we're talking about some early Vincent K McMahon stuff. I think Tito was the original victim of Curse of the Great Worker, where he was kind of a pre Shawn Michaels and his ability to like really move around no matter who he was wrestling. And to create an exciting, fast paced wrestling match by the standards of the time. I think he was very good at that, but that is the skill set that, for whatever reason, historically, Vince McMahon has taken for granted, and those people. Always turn into career mid-carters. And I think we'll talk about a few more of those folks as we roll through this history.
0: Yeah, AJ Styles is really like the first guy that is like a great worker that he was like, oh, I'll put the title on you. Like, like outside of somebody like Sean, who is such a big star on top of being a great worker, like, and then maybe Brett, but I feel like Brett is was a almost a panic move. Like a guy where they're like I want to give you this title because you're a great worker. Who's not the best promo though. I think it just has gotten better. Like it's really been like a not great run for great workers in terms of like a long, meaningful run outside of Bret Hart, but Bret Hart, like I said, I think in post Hogan was like a, de- and reading the, his book is a kind of a desperation ploy. Cause like, Warriors gone. Hogan's got Hogan's basically gone. Like they weren't. Flair wasn't really happy. Like they had lost a lot of people. They gave him the title, the world title in Saskatoon. We'll get to Bret obviously later in this episode because he's one of the great intercontinental champions of all time. But that curse of the good worker is something that has shown up over and over again throughout history, uh, even in this pre-WrestleMania era that we're talking about. Which of course brings us to WrestleMania One, which has greg valentine as champion and uh well <clears throat>
1: sure i will read directly from the notes right before wrestlemania won the title goes on greg valentine and he uh pretty much greg valentine's it <laughs> he quietly holds the title for three quarters of a year has a seven minute match at WrestleMania,
0: yeah does. <laughs>
1: loses the title quietly over the summer and then almost instantly wins the tag titles with beefcake and then doesn't make the Wrestling Classic pay per view, which is the second WWF pay per view. So, so really poor, not great, cake. Bob. <laughs> yeah, poor beefcake, poor Greg, poor, poor Greg. I mean, they what's up? With, what's up with Greg Valentine? But no, no, it it seems to me as I went through this history that like this has to be an intentional move to cool off the title, and the reason that in my mind they're cooling the title off is they're setting up the monster push of one of the most impactful superstars that they're ever going to make. It's like Hogan came to them like five minutes away from being ready to come out of the oven. But in this situation, they're actually going to take someone and they're actually going to use that intercontinental title to take them from being like an outlaw who's known in small regional pockets of the country and turn them into the second biggest star in the world for a decade. And that's Randy Savage. But I think they must have intentionally been using Valentine and using this booking where he has the title for a long stretch and there's not a lot going on. Then he loses it. And then he quietly rolls into something next big angle. It's like, it seems like they almost are kind of making you forget about that title so that then when it gets back on Tito for Savage to win it, it's like, it seems like the title comes out of nowhere. So now you have Savage and he's reignited interest in the title and he's claiming that his title is just as important and just as valid as Hulk Hogan's. But you're like, well, what the fuck? Greg Valentine's had that title for most of the last year. And nobody gives a shit about Greg Valentine. I mean, Greg Valentine's a good wrestler. Don't get me wrong. I I enjoy him way more than most people, but I'm just saying from the common fans perspective, who cares? So then you have this upstart, this crazy wild man coming out of nowhere And saying that his title, the Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship of the World, ooh yeah, means just as much as Hulk Hogan's title. And that is a great heat-getting vehicle. So it's like they kill the IC title for the first year of the WrestleMania era, only to bring it back in one of the most important ways it's ever been used.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that this era, especially not the entire pre-WrestleMania era, obviously, but the, the transition to more meaningless title holders, I, again, think is the nicest way to put it. 80, early 80s wrestling is weird because it's a, a steroid-written, like, nightmare, a lot of it, but there's, like, moments of brilliance. And to me, the based on, you know, like, the atmosphere, they also didn't want Hogan to have to compete with talented performers who also had belts, right? So they don't want Nick, you
1: Nick, to Nick, Nick, Nick. championship titles.
0: It's yeah. it's an article of clothing unless they're
1: trying to hold your pants up.
0: <laughs> they are. I wear championship belts to make sure my pants are up. Do you not do that? Oh,
1: like Willie Nelson at that one WrestleMania where he's singing the anthem.
0: Yes, <laughs> but no. I I think that there is this idea that like, well, we can't have since, and and this is something that develops as you go along. This is a belt that has importance and should imply that the person holding it is important. But when your entire focus, especially in the latter half of this era, is on making Hogan into the biggest deal in the history of wrestling, you don't want to have any other things clouding the judgment. It's almost like when somebody runs for office and you don't want another candidate in the field because it'll make you like, well, I'd rather have Bernie than Than Hillary, it's it's that idea of just like, we have to, like you said, complete almost completely like wash out the title so that all of the focus is on Hogan. So when somebody comes up like a Randy Savage and has the title and says it's a big deal, we can be like, first of all, it's bullshit. And second of all, you're really good. Maybe you can make it a big deal. Like it it allows him to gain ownership of the title. Savage, it allows Savage to gain ownership of the title. And it also allows Hogan to have his shine in a way that he wouldn't have otherwise if say a Randy Savage was the intercontinental title champion intercontinental heavyweight champion when he was first beating the Sheik, the iron Sheik in Madison square garden. Like that would have, I think complicated the story they're trying to tell about Hogan as this amazing athlete. Cause the only thing they really cared about at this point was Hogan and whatever Hogan could bring in, as far as I, I'm concerned, you, you may have a slightly different opinion on it, but I, I feel like Hogan's so the focus. It's like the second half of this era is that's the story of it, is that Hogan is overshadows everything in the mind of Vince McMahon until he has someone like a savage who can compete against Hogan for attention.
1: Definitely. And I think just like we were talking about last week, Uh, We talked a little bit about Daniel Bryan and Shane McMahon and how I said I like how Shane McMahon... Turned on Miz, and that proves to some degree that Daniel Bryan has always been right about the McMahons. Like th- I think that this is a very similar situation with the Hogan and the grandstanding where like the I agree that you know Hogan dominates everything for several years, but that just helps build the eventual Mega Powers angle because there is the idea that like legitimately on every real meta real fake real double fake double secret fake like on every single conceivable level of wrestling Randy Savage's reign as the intercontinental heavyweight champion of the world was overshadowed by Hulk Hogan so like it's the perfect seed that eventually makes the heel right in a way that that really, really stinks. but I, I'm not sure it was intended at the time, as you su- as you suggest.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't want to say this is the golden era because I, I do think the '90s, the early '90s, were uh, a, a more um, talent-laden era. But I think if you look at what makes the Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship, comma, ooh yeah, is this this series of championship title reigns the from savage to warrior to root to warrior basically that that streak of like really high quality uh, like over acts is or in the case of honky talk man anti over acts is what makes the title actually matter to this day like they let's say they uh, valentine valentines it and then they kind of like wash away and they don't have someone like savage come up even if they have someone like honky man come up i don't think it has the same cachet that it does now like this era is the era people think about when they think about the icy title being a prestigious big deal that's not also seen as a direct stepping stone to the world title
1: well i think that this was maybe the era where it was most the stepping stone to the world title at least for like ultimate warrior like ultimate warrior was the one person where they told a very cohesive story that the intercontinental title was his stepping stone to the world title i mean because he he literally he never lost that title which i think is one of the things which as you said this is the era in which the title meant the most but it's almost mm-hmm. like they, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, but it, it's almost like they flushed that equity down the toilet. Yes, When they were like, "Oh, he wins in this great match, the greatest Hulk Hogan match of all time at WrestleMania 6. Yeah,
0: they basically cashed it in for a world title match.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was almost like a money in the bank thing, which is which is wild. And then even when he became world champ, he went he doubled back and had another feud with Rude, who had been his primary antagonist when he was IC champ. So. In a way, they made it seem like there's a very thin veil between being IC champion and being world champion. But on the other hand, they make it seem like when you win the world title, it's like the IC champ just goes away. Like, I know that they they went out of the way and they had Tunny do the thing where Tunny said like, oh, I have determined he cannot possibly fulfill the, the obligations of both championships or whatever. Like, it wasn't that he just gave it up because that would have been way worse. But I still think that, I don't even know, not even that he had to lose but like if they had done a tournament he should have been like on guest commentary during the tournament and he should have somehow played a role in whoever got the title next or something but it's like no the title just goes away for
0: or even as like an enforcer for whoever is against the heat like enforcer for the match between the champion uh the P- 2 people in the final and one of them is like a heel with a manager I-, I totally get what you're saying that they i think this is the point where it goes from like it's not seen as a stepping stone it's seen as a big deal t- like a big platform and then you see guys go and you go, oh it's a it's a stepping stone. And then they're just like, Oh, we're literally just handing the title over as like a ticket to the main event, basically. And I I think, like you said, they took all of that cachet, all of that prestige, and they literally just sold it. They just sold all of their stock in the IC title, essentially for the idea that Hogan needed to be beaten by the best person possible, which, at the, it had been for years because of the what Savage had established, the IC champion. Like, I think it's difficult to overstate how important Savage is to the IC title. He is, to me, the definitive Intercontinental Champion, period.
1: Yeah, yeah. certainly. And I want to directly contrast his case with kind of the great Intercontinental Champion of the early 90s, and that's Mr. Perfect, who got the title after the tournament, after the The title was vacated or whatever but like you were saying savage was portrayed as being on this like alternate rail from hulk hogan and he was gaming gaining all this steam which was also going into the belt and it's the like you know the rising tide floats all boats or whatever or ships whatever the expression is on the other hand mr perfect one of my favorite wrestlers of all time literally the first match i ever saw on television was mr perfect versus doink so like i'm not casting any shade at mr perfect in here but contrasting the great champion of the 80s savage with the great champion of the 90s perfect hogan had already beaten perfect hogan had not beaten savage yet they could legitimately build a super match and there was the idea that the titles even though they weren't directly like in the same division, quote-unquote. It's like when someone used to be in the National League and someone used to be in the American League, you wouldn't know till the World Series kind of thing. Like Hogan and Savage, you wouldn't know because they both had their different responsibilities as the champion. But perfect, in spite of being a great wrestler and a great champion, Hogan had already beaten him. And that just, I don't know, that just, that rubs me the wrong way on a certain level, but it also speaks once again to what you're saying, that you have the Hulk Hogan trying to be all of the WWF and the IC title at various points being kind of a victim of
0: that. Yeah, and I think this is also the transition from it being thought of by the boys in the back as the workers' title to being on television the workers' title. And I think that that's something you build equity in through matches like probably the most famous, and and one we're actually not going to be talking about in the essential viewings, Savage Steamboat. Is to me like the, uh, if Savage is the quintessential, the, 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 the intercontinental, intercontinental champion, that Savage Steamboat match from WrestleMania three, which is considered by a lot of people, the first great match in WWF history. I mean, obviously that's not true, but it's, it was for a very long time, the one they posited as the best match ever that match. And all of the stuff that happens after it is what built, as you like to say, equity into the belt.
1: That match is as important in the 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 mythos of the Intercontinental title as like, you know, Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone is to the mythic history of England. Like, yeah, absolutely. That match that on a card that had Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, if you ask most people who are. I don't want to say people who are aware of wrestling, but if you ask most people who watch more than one hour of wrestling a week, what was the best match on the WrestleMania three card? I think the number of people who said Savage Steamboat would be over 95%. But you know what I mean? That on a card that had the most important wrestling match of all time, like the the affirming Hulk Hogan as the wrestler of his generation and a guy who was going to spill into being the wrestler of a second generation. Like... that night all that happened all the magic happened but savage steamboat is the enduring match and i think that that put a little bit of wrestlemania magic on the ic title i think when daniel bryan came back and won the ic title it put a little bit of wrestlemania magic on the ic belt just to skip a couple of decades but 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 no i think that i think that savage steamboat is crucial To the history of the WWF, as you said, and the history of that title. And it's something you can point to as saying, like, the Intercontinental title stands for this. The Intercontinental title stands for the match that's had a good storyline that's been serviced on TV for a good length of time, but where the focus bell to bell is going to be on having a logical match, not on creating the most sensational moment or getting to the best finish, but on getting these two well-established characters who are really good at what they do together and and getting them in there and just letting them fucking do it. Like, this, that match made the IC title stand for all that, which I think until really recently, I think until the last five, seven years, people started to get beaten down a little bit. But the, the title still had just that that Savage Steamboat WrestleMania three glimmer on it, even into the aughts when I got back into wrestling in college.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things where you don't realize because of the shifts are so subtle, but almost immediately after, because that's, I think it's fair to say, the pinnacle, and it's such a high point in the history of wrestling, especially relative to the era, as in the WWF, I should say, relative to the, uh, the WWF era and the WWF talent kind of shows they were putting on. That slowly starts to leak out air from the title because you go from Steamboat and you essentially go right and please correct me if I'm wrong to Honky Tonk Man, who has to this day, and it makes sense given the time period, the longest heavyweight title, the the longest intercontinental title reign ever, ever. So like it goes from this pinnacle of wrestling to this chicken shit and i don't like him personally i'm not a fan but i understand his importance in the history of wrestling and why people do like him as a matter of fact you can check out uh why wwe stands for walk with elias on the youtube channel to talk about how i feel about and how Tate feels about the honky tonk man but to me they build for over a year and they get warrior over with honky tonk man but that match and i understand the purpose of it i understand all that but to me, the Warrior Honky Tonk match, which lasts, what, 15 seconds, is where there's a point of no return for the title being as meaningful as, say, the world title was to anyone other than, like, the smarkiest marks.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that... I, once again, like we were saying before, you know, before you get the title on Savage, you, you cool it down a lot. And I think... I mean, I think the the people who were there would tell you that, you know, they were going to heat Steamboat up and that he and Savage were going to wrestle again at SummerSlam or at the next WrestleMania. But like Steamboat decided to go home and be a dad. You know what I mean? Like Savage, that, that was famously Savage walking out or sorry, rather Steamboat walking out like almost immediately after they made him champion. And I think the title went to honky tonk man, because they didn't know what the hell to do with it. And I think that frankly, they lost sight of the belt. Like it's, it's on honky tonk. He's doing well at the house shows. People hate him. You know what I mean, but like I, I think that they were a little thrown off after maybe Plan A went south, and as a result, I think the belt got lost. You know, in the in the shuffle for for close to a year.
0: And I, I yeah, I, your mileage will vary on that Warrior match, but the Warrior match to me is such an indictment of Honky Tonk's reign that it almost, to me, again, just to me, it negates a lot of the charm of Honky Tonk's reign. Like if he, I understand him getting his, his ass fed to him, that sounds really dirty, by the warrior. I don't necessarily understand it happening in such a way as to make every person that the Honky Tonk beat over the last year feel almost meaningless.
1: I mean, in your head, think about it for a minute. Is there a conceivable great match between the Honky Tonk Man and the Ultimate Warrior that involves any... Application of wrestling holds or maneuvers, or <laughs> any catches, catch can type techniques. You know what I'm saying? Like what functionally needed to happen? The warrior needed to to beat a honky strong, needed to blow off honky's heat so honky could start over, and needed to you know get himself going. Needed to to get people really behind him to start his run towards the world title. So. I think in terms of functionality, it's one of the great all-time matches. Like, I'm not someone who needs the match to be quote-unquote good for the match to be excellent, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I,
0: no, that makes total and sense. I think that's Thanks. an
1: excellent match, and I love him at the end when they're like, oh, I wasn't ready and stuff. You know what I mean? I wasn't ready. Get him back here again, and we'll have a fair fight and stuff. It's just such good, you know, bullshit, southern, wrestling, chicken shit stuff material. I, I think it's excellent. And I think it was a fitting, excellent way to end his title. I do agree with you though that obviously, like, there were a lot of talented people in the company for that stretch, and it's kind of wild that the Honky Tonk Man was IC champion for for over a year. Like, that's pretty wild. But
0: yeah, that's I think it's it's a combination of the two for me. It's that he was champion for a year and then gets wiped off of the face of the earth by Ultimate Warrior, like just obliterated by that. I think
1: man. that One of the things, well, we can talk about this more in-depth in Essential Viewing. I'll save my hand. But I think one of the stories of the Intercontinental title that you see consistently throughout its history is that this is the level of the card at which you tell the story that all things being equal, the good guys are stronger and better. And we can talk about that more later. But even think about Mr. Perfect, who we were just talking about as kind of the great champion of the early 90s, right? Like, what's his whole gimmick? It's taking bumps. Like, the, the IC belt level for many years was all about establishing the idea that all things being equal the 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 good strong baby face should win and if they don't it's only the direct result of cheating and shenanigans.
0: yeah and i, I think that all that eventually that they build back up that cachet through and, and since we're going to talk about it next episode we don't really need to get into the warrior rude warrior exchange but i think rude is the, the, a callback to the workers champion because rude's job at this point is to make warrior look good kind of notoriously. And from that rude little bit of a, a seed to perfect. And then you go through Brett and Sean, uh, brett and sean and then scott hall and jeff jarrett and gold dust the rock and triple h and i'm forgetting somebody right oh
1: i think you might be forgetting uh stone cold steve motherfucking austin
0: (laughs) oh right yeah and i think that all of those guys i just named who are all good to great intercontinental champions are which is to me why this is the golden era if not the pinnacle, I know that sounds weird, but in terms of the breadth of the talent on the roster, you have all of these guys, and obviously they all worked in different eras, and they they didn't necessarily hand the belt off to each other, though Uh, Razor and did give the belt to Jarrett, Uh, give the belt, uh, passed the belt on to Sean, did it with Razor and actually, I guess the first half, it is actually that way. Sorry, I'm an idiot. That is when you get this idea of it as a direct stepping stone, where it literally goes from a platform upon which you can be brought to the main event, that it is a sign that says, this way to the main event. Yeah, it's
1: literally the way the belt looks on Brett's shoulder. That like, when you see Brett cutting a promo with the belt on his shoulder he looks confident and he looks better and he cuts a better promo somehow because he has the belt on his shoulder and you can very easily see predictively, how that would scale up and then when you look at two three years later it like scales up perfectly you almost get the sense that like with brett and sean they were ic champions trying out to be the world champion i think the same was true of hall
0: yeah, who doesn't, you know, quite get there. But you can definitely see the ways in which, especially during the match, we uh, the Royal Rumble match we're going to talk about next episode, the ways in which he's being built, in particular by Vince McMahon as... Uh, the one of the next guys, and his look at this point is at the point he was champion is off the chart. He has Scott Hall is one of the like best looks of all time, but Razor too really. And Razor was really over. And to me, Razor is in particular interesting because he's a good worker, but he's not a great worker. But he's such a good work. He never has a match to me where I'm like, oh my god. But he has very few matches where I'm like, what the fuck was that? No,
1: no, no. He's he's always in the right place. He always hits the row hard, runs into the corner hard. Uh, you know what I mean, It's he's, he's the guy who, yeah, he's he's not doing a ton of moves, but all the moves he does looks look great and he sets them up all well and he's constantly interacting with the crowd. He's constantly talking to the crowd, talking to the opponent, talking to the ref in character. Like, yeah, no, definitely. I know what you mean, that he's truly a great worker, maybe not a great wrestler in the way we've like kind of ridiculously come to expect that everybody has to be like AJ Styles or Seth Rollins or whatever in 29 or Daniel Bryan, like that everybody has to be doing all that stuff. But in terms of just like, yeah, being in the right place, taking great looking bumps, hitting the ropes hard, he's as good as anybody ever. Throwing great punches. <laughs> oh
0: God, yeah, and I think you can really see this as a what I call I call the post Hogan post Love era of wrestling, where it's like we don't really know what to do, but quietly are figuring it out at a level we've never been able to. Like I am obviously hopelessly biased for this era. But to me, this is the best era of WWF until recently in terms of in-ring work, in terms of storylines and the way everything connects. It is a better wrestling show, I think, than is often given credit because the Attitude Era comes and everybody's like, "Ah, I want to jerk off to titties. I think that's why people like the Attitude Era. I have no clue why people like the Attitude Era. But this era really establishes both the seeds of what would later come in the Attitude Era, but that there's this real transition you see from perfect who's the definition of a transitional champion to Brett and Sean, who are these stepping with the real, like this way to the main event kind of guys and, and diesel too. And then you have Scott Hall who kind of puts the title on this different track for a little bit where it goes, like I said, from him to Jeff Jarrett and then that gold dusty kind of, mid like hard mid card cap on the character kind of thing and shamrock
1: he was a good wrestler and part of angles but it didn't really mean anything that yeah. he was in Intercontinental gotten an
0: champion. yeah and jeff jarrett you and i are huge <laughs> jeff jarrett fans when i was a kid this to me is what you feel like i think the way you feel about honky tonk man's title reign is how i feel about jeff Jarrett's like, I watch Jeff Jarrett and I'm like, he's so much better than Honky Tonk that I like can't look at Honky Tonk's reign. That to me, the Jarrett reigns uh, are weirdly like great because they are the belt that makes the most sense for him. He is not a WWF world champion, but he is a world champion level talent as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, yeah, he definitely, I mean, he had tremendous confidence and presence and what's interesting is that he goes from so he he has the ic title as like streamer shirt with the collar around his neck jeff jarrett but then when he when you get to attitude era jeff jarrett after he cuts his hair and has the the crew cut and deborah and the guitars and the don't piss me off and slap nuts and like all that stuff like when he becomes the fully flared jeff jarrett with the intercontinental title and deborah He's like, for a short stretch, the most confident performer on the show. Like, when he breaks through the curtain, the way he says and enunciates yeah. every word, the way he hits all of his punchlines like a stand up comedian, just like waiting for people to boo or groan or whatever. Like, there is a period where Intercontinental champion Jeff Jarrett is feeling himself, and you can see in him what. He and
0: Vince Russo saw in him, <laughs> you know, like Oh yeah. A uh, total. Je- uh, we are again hopelessly biased towards Jeff Jarrett. They- there are some matches in this reign where in the especially his first run, where it's just like, you could you were the curse of the great worker. You're an unbelievable. He is a He's such a young Jeff Jarrett is oh, like. Oh, it's like
1: the the In Your House two match, is it, With him and Shawn, that's like the match that people talk about of kind of like the the great match that nobody, you know, the great match that they don't really put out on DVDs or don't really talk about as a great match in WWE history. That like that's one of them. Yeah,
0: he is a real, and I think this whole crew of like him and Goldust, Dustin, when Dustin Rhodes is another guy for for us that's just like he, he is so good, just so good at their jobs and i think that those kind of guys the halls the jarrets the gold dusts really set the stage they shift the meaning of i don't want to say they don't they don't shift the meaning of the title away from maybe i was wrong when i said earlier that that they shift the title away from but they serve as a not a cooling but they are kind of like the um you know when you go to a fast food place and they have all the stuff under the heater, like the fryer? That's kind of what they were. They kept everything warm for the guys that were coming next, but they didn't lose any of the flavor of the title. They just didn't bring it to that next level. They just kept it for guys like The Rock and Triple H and Stone Cold Steve Austin to really use it as parts of their own feuds. And since they themselves, were Rock, Triple H, and us, were such big, or sorry, Stone Cold Steve motherfucking Austin are are such transcendent characters that they brought the title to that next level, which is also why the Attitude Era is such a dog shit time for the IC title. To me, this is the nadir, even more so than the, the, the next couple of eras where the title means less and being champion means less. To me, being champion at this point meant almost fucking nothing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually did do a little a little title reign math, and so Austin wins the title and breaks his neck at SummerSlam in '97, right? So from August of '97, uh, when Owen you know gets the title back on TV, so from when the time Owen gets the title back on TV in the fall of '97 until 2002, WrestleMania 18, when they do the brand split, so from summer of '97. To the brand split, there are 40 title reigns in less than five full years.
0: Yeah, it's eight per year, and it's, I promise you, way more of a frequency than that. It's probably like 12 in one year and two in another. It is insane how, like, how often they – I just hate the Attitude Era, and this is why – nothing fucking mattered at all. They were just like, hey, everybody, we're all going to get laid. That's that's what this era is. is hey, everybody, we're all going to get laid.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I mostly agree. It's a shame. And it, it's weird because at the same time, I almost brought this up with uh, Jarrett, but at the same time in the Attitude Era, there was also the European title. And at times in the early Attitude Era, there was also the light heavyweight title. So
0: And the hardcore was- title.
1: And the hardcore title. Exactly. There was this profusion of, of championships and there were the NWA, you know, like the, the, whatever it was, the Western States heritage title or the, whatever the hell it was that Jarrett had. And you know what I mean? It was, it was wild for, for a bit there. And I think that a lot of the luster came off the IC title belt when you had a mid card with you know 15 people who were pretty solidly over on tv always got huge reactions and they just kind of rotated those two belts around and they kind of muddied the thing where like it either needs to be as you were saying where the ic title is either a clear step to the world title whether it is a whole second rail whether it has to have some sort of identity and it completely lost that in the attitude era it was just one of a number of belts that guys who weren't in the main event could could swap around on tv i mean there was some good stuff like you know i i like the chris jericho and china being co-champions like i know that that's the worst sin by a lot of traditionalists but I think that it was you know it was doing something new and interesting with with the title that did make it seem really current during the attitude era like that kind of put a new late 90s shine on it like i was saying i love i love dick ass fully flared jeff jarrett once again kind of in the era of of the the china feud and all that but i think after that especially i think from like 99 and 2000 and 2001 they fucking
0: unified the titles in 2001
1: (laughs) they unified it with the u.s title at survivor series in 01 and then they ununified those titles two years later when they brought the u.s title back to like add it to the brand split or whatever so it's a total fucking mess total 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 fucking mess like the title can mean any number of things and it has meant any number of things at different times but it has to mean something and it, it didn't here.
0: And they really struggled and I think they're still struggling but they really struggled in this in a lot of different ways in the post attitude era to figure out a way to like build stars and also pay not homage uh, pay their bills right that's what it was with nostalgia so there's this weird like I hate Rob Van Dam and the idea that he was... i He really bothers me and the idea that he's like the guy who was the... One who, if I remember correctly, unified the title, right? Or something like, like he... Yeah, yeah,
1: they unified the European and the IC in a match yeah. with him and Hardy, I think it
0: was. Yeah, and it's just like, there, there's it's this era of guys who are like, if not from the Attitude Era, remnants of the Attitude Era with what would eventually become, what would eventually become the kind of guys you will see today. And they're just not really sure how to deal with that as a company. And I think that because of that, because they don't understand the hierarchy of the company beyond these guys are the super main event. Everybody else is dog shit that you get this weird, like the title has more meaning than it did in the attitude era because they're not trading it off every 10 minutes, but it's a bunch of people who we kind of know aren't ever going to make it to that next level or if they are it's not cuz they're the I, because they're the IC champion it's because like they got super over with a weird gimmick or something like that they they aren't sure what to do at this point with themselves and it really manifests itself more so than anything else in the IC title because it has this cachet with the company but they're not sure what that cachet is because it's completely diluted in the last 5 years
1: before that yeah definitely i mean you see The kind of era of i don't know like carlito a or or like johnny nitro or like jamaican kofi kingston or even ecw cm punk like some of those guys who who had a lick of the IC title in their formative years and it was always like oh we like this guy and we want to give him a little something but like we don't really have anything super good for him to do yet but like Oh, there's the intercontinental title, you know, like, let, let's do that. That won't be bad. And then we'll get him on pay-per-views. And then there's a reason that he's feuding with some more seasoned mid carters and stuff. But it was like, it was, it was like the invitation for a while for, for younger guys to, you know, start swimming in the deep end of the pool. And for some of the veteran guys, like whether it was like Ric Flair or Chris Jericho, kind of the default IC champion for a long time, or like you said, Van Dam, like, Every time those guys came back, it's like, oh hey, they're the IC champion again, and they're getting their little run, and then they pass it to someone we like, and we hope they get over, and then we get kind of bored with it, and then it kind of dies for a while, and then we put it back on a veteran, and then we use it to heat up a young guy, and then we get kind of bored with it, rinse, repeat.
0: Yeah, they just there. This company is so listless during this time that you're just amazed that they. I, I wouldn't say that. That maybe that's not fair. You are surprised that they're doing as well as they are now. I think that like the WWE is at such a loss at this time. And this is what I started watching in was like 2006 in in college because I had stopped watching because the editor just got to be too much for me for somebody that grew up with the new generation. It was just like, this isn't good. And like, I'm a, not to be like, I'm a feminist, but I'm a feminist. and This is fucking horrifying shit like if you care about women as not objects the attitude era is like the clockwork are the shit they make them watch in the clockwork aren't a or clockwork orange like it is fucking disturbing the stuff they do to women in this era so like you mentioned china i think that's funny it's, it's like also that is the pinnacle at the up until recently of women's wrestling in the wwe and that shows like there's nothing I don't want to say there's nothing good that happens in this era, but there's very few people because we we actually have two matches from this because the performers are great. They just have no fucking clue what to do with them. Like Randy Orton and Edge are in this era and they get it. But those guys are like that is a way station for them on the world champion. It is not the stepping stone it was for, say, Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels. It is literally, we're holding this belt on this guy until the guy who's champion is willing to give it up, or we can figure out a way to get the belt off of him. It's not, it's much more warrior-esque than the more tradition, the the better, I should, I I will go as far to say better idea of the IC Championship, which is that it means you're a great worker, and that could mean you're going one of two ways. You either stay at this level or you go up a thing. It's kind of like, you're a great worker, but that doesn't mean that much. (laughs) And I think that if you look at that era, a lot of it has to do with the way that they were booking and getting talent is just like, it's off. They're in this no man's land of like not having any competition, but also not having, I know TNA, but not having any competition and also not quite having enough popularity to like, get any transcendent stars in the company. Like none of the guys from that era really made it to the level that guys like John Cena are making it out. Even Batista is obviously in that era, but like he, he really hit his stride later on past this era of guys who were just like actual transcendent superstars. There's a lot of people from this era. It's almost like the nineties in basketball where you have a bunch of rookies coming in on these huge contracts and they never quite do anything. And it's not that they were bad. It's just like Jawan Howard wasn't a, Top five overall pick. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of guys they make high picks with, and they just don't develop in meaningful ways because they have such a like a a hard ceiling with the company. That to me, the IC belt becomes like a a cap. You were literally like can't go above this level if you're the IC champion because th- we just need the IC champion to be a guy that loses on television or. Has feuds that have some meaning because there's an IC champion involved, but don't actually have meaning because nobody cares about the title and nobody cares about the feud.
1: <laughs> I think Drew McIntyre had to like go away for uh, for several years and and develop into the world's handsomest Viking or whatever in order to shake off that stigma and come back, right? But <laughs> no, I think I mean I think that like 2003 to, to 2008 or nine is really going to be seen as a lost era. I mean, this is this is kind of a sidebar. But I mean, when you look at like, you know, Sylvain Grenier or, or I, I don't know, I'm just like the names of all the people that, uh, Heidenreich or Wikenzo Suzuki, like uh, th- that whole era, that like Johnny Ace era. And like people say, people act like the problem was that like they, they ran out of talent, right? That there wasn't ta- talent that had broken in during the late territory era left anymore. Like those people didn't exist anymore and they hadn't really figured out the developmental thing yet like that's that's what people tend to say but whatever whatever the cause the result of that was that really the stars of this era our era the current era most of those people didn't really get over until key people from the attitude era came back and started doing the part-time blessing people at WrestleMania thing like C- CM Punk can say all he wants that part-timers shouldn't be in the main event at Wrestlemania or whatever but the the guys of his era would never have gotten over in the way they did if not for those Attitude Era guys coming back and blessing them Like John Cena would not have gotten universally over if not for his feud with The Rock that's when people started to get behind him more and be like oh man the stuff The Rock says is dated and homophobic it's like the, the like it's like the the reason that triple h still has a huge match with a big epic entrance at wrestlemania every year it's not that he's like vain or that it's that the he's the son-in-law it's that frankly that he's one of the last great over acts from the last era of great over acts and frankly it's a responsibility that he should have aged out at this point but he still has the responsibility of getting the most important angles over heading into wrestlemania like it's wild to me, just like I said, a lost era where nobody got over and they literally had to reach back. They're still reaching back. They got Shawn Michaels to go to Saudi Arabia because the stars that they brought up between 2003 and 2008 or nine, you know, outside of your Orton's and your Cena's, like outside of the top five names you can think of, where the hell is everybody else? It's just, it's just wild. And when you talk about the intercontinental championship it's just like the belt it's like if you talk about crop rotation like farming or whatever like the belt is fucking lying fallow from the end of the attitude era basically until Drew McIntyre
0: I would say. Yeah and he's he's wonderful and very handsome and I think he's like I think he is actually we're going to look back at those title reigns because I think he's going to be a huge Star over the next couple of years because that dude has the best look of probably his generation. Like, and it's a great worker. But like, holy shit, that guy looks like a wrestling champion. And I, I feel like that's why. He, and that's why he was the chosen one. But what you see from that is they kind of go, oh, okay, that's what we need to do with both the performers and with the icy title. We kind of have to give it to people who are really at that level or not at that level at all. So there's no weird ambiguity. There's no like, well, are they trying to push him? They both, he added prestige to the belt, but almost in a way that like the most improved player award in the NBA works where it's like, you're a guy we're going to be doing stuff with in the future. But right now we need you to have, a thing that we can market and that is the icy title like the brand itself has become the icy title brand has become to people who watched when they were younger like 20 years ago has, has still has the cachet and also like it's a belt so we're like or sorry a title a championship but
1: belts hold up your pants pal
0: <laughs> but there's this definitely this idea of It becomes a thing that they both use to allow people to lose constantly on TV, but to have them be important people on TV, usually. And I think that's kind of a good place to be, especially relative to the Attitude Era and relative to the previous era before it.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think that if you look at that, those Drew reigns before he went away and came back, like those IC title reigns today would be NXT title reigns. Mm -hmm. Know what I'm saying? That like, yeah, he, he had it when he came back.
0: back. He got that NXT title. Yeah,
1: ring. exactly. He came right back in basically at the same level, did it all over again, and then graduated back to the main roster, right? But, you know, it is it is kind of fascinating to think that, like, those IC title reigns for him, they were like... Because, I mean, that was really post the peak of OVW, but before they would really figured out the what NXT and the Performance Center are now. And that, that IC title belt, it was almost the, like the this guy is really special and like, he's the future and we don't want to We don't know what to do with him now, but like, we don't want to job him out and we, we, but we want to have him on TV because he's making good money and we really, really like him and he needs to get experienced being on TV and having matches for live crowds and touring. It's like, he would have been in NXT today. So to me, it's like, it's really interesting that he kind of, like I said to me, he's the end of an era of the IC title because that sort of icy title reign that he and Kofi Kingston and CM Punk and those guys were getting, those are NXT title reigns now.
0: It's a running joke in a lot of, it, the challenger has been the under, intercontinental champion is like a definitive part of the modern era of wrestling, which is this idea that like wins and losses only matter on pay-per-view. And that's to me, and this is something that I think is going to become more of the thing we talk about, is people wrestle too fucking much right now. There are too many. I like the idea of like an open challenge if you're going to do it that way. But this like you can get random title shots on Raw if you talk to the right GM or authority figure is not a place the title should be. And I don't think it has ruined the title. But I think like you said, the NXT title has taken that spot of like that's a guy to look out for where the IC title is a guy you should be aware of as a good performer that may or may not lose. Like, it doesn't mean that they're going to win every match. It means that they're going to wrestle someone and 50-50. Yeah, to
1: right, exactly. Which, I mean, that's, like, the ultimate curse of, of being in the main event in the WWE in the 21st century for more than a month. Is <laughs> It's 50-50 to death with everybody forever and ever and ever until the end of time.
0: And I think if you look at the string of people, it is, it is really a, a graveyard in that way. It's Dolph. Dashing Cody Rhodes, Wade Barrett, who I think if he could have stayed healthy would have a much different career trajectory. But that's oh, not. he
1: would still be a he would still be a wrestler in the WWE if he hadn't broken his arm that second time right after he came back.
0: Yeah, and then you have like the, like you mentioned it. The Daniel Bryan is kind of like the zenith of the eh, I guess maybe the Miz. It's between the... That is the I guess the um, war not warrior. That's kind of like the we're making the belt matter again, but we're telling you it matters and we're not actually showing you it matters where the Miz to me is the way it is the definitive in the way Chris Jericho was before him, the definitive perfect icy champion for this era.
1: Well, to bring the conversation back a half hour, 40 minutes, whatever it is, the Miz is kind of like if the honky tonk man was a better wrestler, not that he was a bad wrestler. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that. But that his based on his gimmick and based on the style at the time he did almost nothing. And that was fundamental to his performance of the character. And he insisted upon doing almost nothing. Whereas the Miz is that same kind of heat seeker and that same sort of naturally hateable person, but I'm not sure he can deliver the great 20-minute match, but he can deliver the great 12-minute match. You know what I mean? He
0: fits the role of the IC champion perfectly. Like They have an identity for the IC championship through a guy like The Miz. And to me, that's a really important thing for the long-term value of the title. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. We've talked throughout this show about several distinct different eras really of the title from pre-wrestlemania to the early wrestlemania to kind of the savage the new generation the attitude era beyond etc etc i won't list them all out but one lesson that i think you can really observe when you trace the history of the intercontinental title is that this this idea of perceived value in the marketplace like a concept that comes from from marketing and sales that things in this the intercontinental title. The intercontinental title or things generally are worth their perceived value before purchase and then assessed by their functional ability after purchase, meaning that like...
0: The utility the the user gets from it or the customer gets from it essentially, Exactly.
1: So before purchase, it's more about perceived value. And then after purchase, it's about utility. And I think that those two sensibilities are always tugging at the intercontinental title what's the perceived market value of the belt where what stratum is that belt in right now and then the functional ability of the champion to be the champion and have the matches it's such a push pull it's like the 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 world title means one thing and almost always has meant one thing but the intercontinental title has meant many things and what you can expect to get out of it and what you can expect to get out of making someone the champion really, really varies by era and opponents and just a wealth of factors. It, it, it's wild. It's always had a value, but the value is fluctuated based on many other market factors.
0: Yeah. And you look at uh, someone like a, a Don Morocco or even a Road dog, they were elevated by the IC title, but also... Did well with it because they fit that role perfectly. They came in, they got the belt over because people either wanted to see him win the match or lose the match. They really, they didn't transcend the belt and the belt didn't become transcendent because of them, but they really did a good job of working their lane with the title. And that's, to me, like the thing you would want the most out of all of this, especially because the way that the title can, because like you said, you have the world title is this peg And everything else is a floating exchange rate relative to to that. And you can't control that necessarily. You can just do the best with what you have at the given time. If the IC belt needs to be important for this reason or that reason, that's cool. But if not, you need to be able to bring it back down. And you need performers that do it well in that space, whatever that space may be.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that if you want to try to write a single through narrative for the Intercontinental title, that is it. That it's, that it's almost always been on performers who either are capable a lot, of a lot and are valuable to the card or are people you're hoping are going to be capable of a lot and valuable to the card in the near future. It's it's always stood for this this idea that that there is a next generation floating just below the main event. And for the super casual viewer, they're just going to see Hulk Hogan. But for the person who watches week to week, for the person who actually invests time in the product and gets to know the characters, that Intercontinental title represents like, this is a character you should be sure you know. If they're an older guy, you should be trying to backfill to learn more about where they came from. If they're a younger guy, you should be getting curious and excited
0: about where they're going. So I think now that we've solved the mystery of the IC title, I I had, actually, you had a question. I'm going to give you credit, because it was a great fucking question. Um, If you had your druthers and could define the IC belt at any level, what would it be right now? And, like, what would you do with it? What level would it be? And who would be your champion?
1: Well, uh, there's a simple answer and there's a complicated answer. And the simple answer is not really simple because it involves... Uh, a total lack of reality Uh, in a world where the Miz in a world in a world world where the Miz had not had his baby was not married to Maurice who was also a baby face on their own reality show I would think that the Miz could still be carrying off a great intercontinental title reign um I I just thought I thought that he was perfect honestly like he he grounded it in that that kind of 90s or rather sorry, that kind of 80s heel performance, that idea of like the show's about the baby face, but the heel's got the title. And the heel, therefore, by his performance as the champion, makes the babyface just as much as the babyface's own performance. That that great we've talked about it with like Arn and Tully, that 80s upper mid-card, upper third of the card, just kind of like work a day attitude of making the guy. I think the Miz was so excellent at that. But I do think that, you know, having his adorable family and having his reality show has has kind of taken some of that legitimate heat, that legitimate lack, that that legitimate hateability that he used to have so much of. I think a lot of that is gone. So, So with that said, if we can't just go back in time a year and a half and have The Miz doing what he was so good at, I think what I would do is I would have it be someone who was a gatekeeper on Raw, who sometimes cruiserweights could beat, and that meant a lot. Like, I think it would be, it could be someone who's like, you know what I'm saying? Like someone who would have been William Regal 15 years ago or whatever, like someone who's a really, really solid wrestler who's, who's capable of doing a lot, uh, but who, who could occasionally be beat by someone coming up from NXT, or, or someone who was, you know, making a name for themselves on 205 Live as a nice surprise. So I guess I'm pitching the classic use of the title, which is, you know, they stay relatively strong in terms of the fact that they win, but they're mostly there to be making the, the young and up-and-coming baby faces look good. So that's the positioning I'm going with, and uh, let's see. I mean, hmm, who that person actually would be is, is a different question. Like, I don't know if that person works in the WWE on the main roster right now um maybe like a like a luke harper would be someone in an alternate universe where you could kind of reboot him as his own man and i think like i said he could be you know taking on smaller guys mostly looking really dominant and like a bully but also showing his ass and looking beatable so i'm saying luke harper as the the beatable bully big guy
0: well, it blows my Rowan choice. <laughs> no, you know who I would put it on? I would put it on on and- Andrade Cien, or it's Andrade now. He would, I think you could also work the gimmick of him being like an actual intercontinental champion. Like, I think they could get heat that way, that he's one of the first true intercontinental champions. Uh, you know, just could it's a good way to get heat but he's also such a next level talent that having a belt on him you could both do the uh the challengers pin the uh, intercontinental champion and also have him win matches in the way that like rick rude and bobby heenan won matches with him and Zelina vega like they're there's a lot going on. It's almost that Miz thing of though Miz is on a neck, obviously in a completely different stratosphere on the mic in terms of building uh, equity into the, the whatever we're going to be watching, whatever match or feud, whatever. But I feel like in terms of skill, I'd want someone who can just have an, a match every single week that's going to be good and also be able to constantly win matches. He may not he quote-unquote shouldn't, I, I think that would be the way it would go. And it's a, it's another guy, it's an IC title, uh, sorry, it's an NXT champion transitioning to this next level of like, he's a starter in this league. He's probably an all-star, but he's not an MVP yet. And we want to see if he can get to MVP, but if not, you at least get some good IC title matches. Like, I think that him versus Rey Mysterio, those matches would have been even bigger if they're IC title. Not that I thought they were bad or lost anything because they weren't, but I think when you have that as a major thing or even have a Rey Mysterio as an IC champion that somebody like Andrade beats. I think either of those that would work where you're allowing the title and title to speak to the history of great workers without it being a thing that posits them as the next big thing in the way that it might for like a, a Drew McIntyre or even a Seth Rollins who recently had the IC title.
1: I absolutely love your CN picnic. This is the first time I've really had true answer envy uh, on, our, on, our, on one of our broadcasts. He's he's one of my very favorites. He has been since he first shown up in NXT. Just, just a great choice, a way better one than mine. And I'm extra embarrassed considering that you kind of gave away that I came up with this question and I hadn't brainstormed an answer to it before we got on the air. So uh, you're just making me look like shit in a lot of different ways out there, Nick.
0: I'm just doing what comes naturally, Dave. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. So uh, do you have anything to plug this week?
1: Oh, well, as usual, people should follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. And people should follow us on Twitter at pod, where uh, we are posting links to our best of How Wrestling Explains YouTube series. Uh, a video is dropping every few days. It's like a three to eight minute clip from the show. Just some of our very best conversations uh, selected and curated by us and set to some nice uh, moving images by Nicholas. Uh, really great and exciting stuff. Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube so you hear when things come out and so you make our numbers look really nice. Uh, and, and like I said, those little clips are a great opportunity to share some little parts of the show forward, whether it's on social media or you know emailing to people during work or whatever, any of that good stuff. So make sure you're checking out those best of clips on the YouTube channel and uh, make sure that you are sharing them forward to others. We're still looking to hit that, uh, that goal on the five-star reviews. Our goal is 25, and we are currently at 2. So uh, if you are a person out there who thinks that you can help us get from 2 to 25, uh, you could really help us out by just jumping on iTunes for a couple of minutes, giving us the five stars or the four-and-a-half stars maybe – uh, but definitely the five and then your written comments, like it'll just take a minute or two and it'll really make a world of different for, difference for us because we literally don't have enough ratings right now for them to aggregate us an average. And that means that we're almost impossible for new listeners to just stumble upon. Once we have enough feedback from you listeners that they can actually create an average rating then we're way easier for people to discover and it's, it's it we get bumped higher up on all sorts of lists but until we actually have a valid rating it's really tough for us to grow the show so one way that you can help in a very direct way is just to jump on iTunes and give us a uh, a little uh, a little recommendation a little five star action
0: Please yeah. please sir I would like some more stars Ah, ah. uh you can check me Sorry, I'm the biggest dick. Uh, you can check me out at the Nixer. That's T H E N 1 C K S T R. You can check us out at HowWrestlingExplains.podbean.com and rate, review, and subscribe to us in the manner that Dave suggested on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or the Google Play Store. Did you have any Pocket Cast news this week, Dave?
1: Well, I heard. Are you? Oh, I know you are familiar with actually the, uh, the Nintendo Switch.
0: Mm hmm. It's great.
1: Yeah, so I've heard that Pocket Cast is designing their own console. And so what it's going to be is like it can, it can travel anywhere like the Switch, but you can also kind of, you know, sit it in the saddle at home and it'll just play through your, your normal speakers and everything. But uh, so what the Pocket Cast is going to be is it's like a Switch, but it's for podcasts. So you can like bring it around with you and, you know, listen to it on the subway and set it up on a little kickstand. And uh, it plays the podcast. And as you listen, you can actually see what our – Faces and bodies looked like through a uh, pirated video feed that has been taken uh, from the webcams on our computers as we record. So like in addition to hearing all our insights, you'll get to see like the top of my head while I'm looking down to taking notes. Um, someone might pick a nose, uh, maybe there's been episodes where one or more of us was just completely ass naked and to this point you haven't known. Um, so, if you really want to get this next level of experience, if you want to help us become the first truly 3D podcast, um, you should definitely, definitely keep your eyes on Pocket Cast. Eat it, Keenan. Secret
2: now there is a brand new intercontinental champ here in the World Wrestling Federation. By virtue of that victory in Beantown, he is my guest at this time from Sarasota, Florida. And I can't believe it, break down, break Randy break down. Down. You made the prediction. You did it publicly. On this very television station, I cannot believe it. You are the intercontinental title holder right now. How, how does it feel to hold that championship belt?
3: I'm not surprised at all. No, I'm not. And I don't think all the millions and millions of people around the world are surprised either because it was overmatched. Yes, you Santana didn't stand a chance. No, he didn't. And I told all the people that, and I told you that, and it came true. All right, now. You,
2: wait, wait a minute now. Randy Savage, if I may play the devil's advocate after seeing repeatedly that footage from Boston in that, in that title match, I, along with many others, especially one gorilla monsoon who I talked to immediately after the match, out of the impression, the contention, that you used a foreign object in arriving at this title, a foreign object of some sort. you
3: got to be ribbing. What do you mean I'm ribbing? I'm not no, ribbing. Gotta... I'm bringing it up. Well, you got to be ribbing. you got to be ribbing about that. I'm not. Are you trying to do tarnish the intercontinental heavyweight champion of the World. I know
2: Gorilla Monsoon. He's a very responsible journalist and reporter.
3: I believe that Gorilla Monsoon has uh, got a new job as Tito Santana's psychiatrist. Yeah, because Tito Santana cannot accept the fact that the macho man is way up there. Yeah. Knocking on Heaven's door, looking at the world heavyweight title. Be it close.
2: All right, it may be from the frying pan into the fire because Randy Savage, no sooner did you acquire the inter- the Intercontinental title, and you have a defense coming up here in town. During the month of March, and it's going to be against the former champion, now challenger, Tito Santana.
3: Yeah, and I suppose that he's really hot. He bothered, yeah. And his gorilla monsoon talking to him and feeding him full of lies about the match in the Boston Garden on February the 8th. Well, man... Everybody get excited. Whoa. I am excited, yeah. Hi.
2: I am. Elizabeth, apparently you've got to be quite happy by all of this, right? Oh,
3: yes. Huh? You're quite happy? That, yes. You're
2: aesthetic, aren't,
3: you? aren't you? Yeah, you're let let me be I'm gonna let you I'm going to let you hold the belt, <laughs> How can you do that, sir? I'm the champion, Mr. B. And has got want. a challenger coming and after you like us. This. in Tilo Santana.
1: Of course, I'm despicable,
0: oppressive, misinformed, but we have for you to fight your tongue secure and the promise that you're right in every